Hello, everybody, and welcome to this reading of my latest book, The Copper Gates. My name is Lars Hederholm, and you can find out more about me on my webpage. Um, I don't uh, want to make any money from uh, reading this book, but you can donate um, to um, a monastery in India that we are working with, uh, with orphans, uh, and perhaps you will be inspired to send in a little contribution to them. And you will also find the address on this page that you're looking at now. Uh, the Copper Gates is a science fiction book that will take you into the vast realm of the mind for a discovery of things that you may not have thought about or visited before. I hope when you come back from the trip into the Copper Gates uh, that you will bring something with you that will be useful for yourself and others. Um, in the second book, which is not finished yet, uh, called Bhuvanar, you will find the protagonist from the Copper Gates and his friends uh, in India, where they are facing a apocalypse and are brought together between different groups and castes to agree on their survival. But that book, again, is not finished and will probably be on the same media uh, in about three to four months from now. However, now, please sit back, relax, fasten your seatbelts, and let's go through the Copper Gates together. The Copper Gates. Martin Ostfall was sitting at the edge of his bed, fully awake, eyes wide open. His heart was pounding so hard that he could feel it through his whole body. He stood up and went to the bathroom and looked into the mirror. Terror was looking back at him. The same dream again. He had just been standing in front of a large, shining copper gate so close that he had to bend backwards to see the top. An intense light poured out through the crack as the double doors were slowly opened. An assertive voice had demanded that he fix his eyes on the ground. Under no circumstances was he allowed to look straight into the blinding light. An invisible force had pulled him slowly towards the opening, and just as he was about to squeeze through the gate, he had convinced himself that some unimaginable inferno was waiting for him on the other side. That was the moment when he woke up. As he looked around the room, he noticed the sharp, metallic smell of fear that he knew so well. Again and again, the same dream, ten, maybe fifteen times. Why could he not rid himself of this nightmare? What was the dream telling him? Some years earlier, Martin had been standing in front of the copper gates this time in a remote village deep in the Peruvian jungle. 
the shaman Antonio Alvarez from the Urarina tribe had introduced him to peyote and some other traditional psychedelic herbs. Martin had known about Antonio through some friends who told him about the deep revelation of a secret world they had visited, being guided by the magic powers of Antonio and his secret plant substances. Martin had flown to Lima, and from there it took him almost three days to reach the jungle village where Antonio lived with his family and his tribe. The village was nested in a clearing in the dense jungle, some 30 straw-roofed houses built with clay and plant material lined the sandy road that started in the jungle and ended up next to a slow-flowing river. Children, animals and adults were living together in harmony. Everyone in the village, men, women, children and animals, regarded Marty's presses with a mixture of amusement and shyness. The first two weeks, Antonio didn't speak directly to Martin. He just sat with him for days and nights, performing his complicated rituals. A few times he studied Martin with eyes that looked both at him and past him. The ritual became increasingly intense and lasted for days and into the nights. Antonio took great care to prepare the foul-tasting concoctions that Martin swallowed every morning. And then, one day, as Antonio went into trance, naked men and women were dancing in a slow circle outside the house to the monotone beat of drums. When the dance stopped, Antonio addressed Martin directly for the first time. He said that now that Martin was fully initiated, he was going to pass through some obstacles before he joined the wisdom of the spirit world. He was told to relax his mind and his body no matter what he was going to see before he arrived at the luminous state of mind that would reveal itself when fear had released its grip from the mind. After having said that, a new kind of dark, foul-smelling paste was given to Martin to swallow. The result was days of balancing on the sharp edges between terrifying dreams and periodic visits to a jungle paradise with birds, butterflies, sweet rivers and laughing children. Between these experiences, Martin was fully present, observing every detail with his shadows, colors, angles and forms. So real and yet so unreal and otherworldly, appearing as a kaleidoscope that the mind was shaking. And then it happened. In a flash, he found himself standing in front of a huge copper gate with the intense light streaming out between the two doors that made up the gate. Who was behind the stern voice giving him orders to look away from the light? What kind of reality was revealed through the foul-smelling and bitter substance that Antonio told him was sacred and could lead him into a world more truthful than the one he was living in now? Antonio had screamed to him to muster his courage to enter through the opening doors 
but just as he came close to the opening, he froze, utterly unable to take that last step. Somehow Antonio had the ability to freely enter Martin's state of mind, but no assurance from him could convince Martin to go through the gates. Antonio had been guiding Martin all the way to the copper gate as he was burning herbs and covering Martin's naked body with ashes and mud. After refusing to enter, Martin had been vomiting until nothing was left, followed by a splitting headache. In a last huge flash, Martin experienced his mind operating like a four-dimensional flipper game. And then the moment came when he saw his own physical body walking in through the door to sit down next to him, looking at him with a face that revealed nothing. That was the end of the journey. He was now convinced that he was about to lose his mind with nothing to come back to. Martin decided that he could take no more of the experience. He packed his bags, took farewell of Antonio and the village people and went back to New York City. Before departure, Antonio had sat him down for a final talk and told him that there was more for him to do. Martin needed to understand that leaving unfinished would always be with him until he was ready to release his attachments to the superficial world that he was hanging on to for his dear life. Antonio had asked him to come back after a year of reflection and then he wanted Martin to make a new attempt to pass through the gate. Martin kept postponing the idea to go back to Peru until the promise he made to return had faded away. But the dreams continued to remind him of how he was standing paralyzed in front of the gates. One difference was that in the dreams, the voice was no longer a male voice. It was the voice of a woman telling him to refrain from looking up as the doors opened. As a result of his work with Antonio, Martin changed his art. He started to make drawings and paintings of himself standing there in the presence of the blinding light. He even made a four-meter-high model of the gate, covered with shining copper. In front of the gate, he made a life-size figure from mud and straw, standing on all four. He arranged for a show in his Chelsea gallery, where he projected a blinding backlight streaming out to the crack between the two doors of the gate. He was present in the gallery every day for two weeks, asking visitors to share their fantasies about what could possibly be found on the other side of that gate. He collected more than 50 answers, but none resonated with his fear of what was waiting for him on the other side of the gates. Some people suggested that the door was the entry to paradise. Other fantasized that the light revealed some purgatory 
or hell hiding there. Someone who knew Martin suggested that the light came from a fire that existed only so that Martin would be given a chance to burn his transgressions in a sacred fire. Others speculated that the gate was hiding the land of wandering and tormented souls. One person thought that the passage through the door was the gift from the universe to liberate the artist from fear and self-imposed limitations. Most of the people said that there was nothing behind the gate, only a lamp and space inside more space. No thingness. Over the years, Martin, Martin's art had become a talking piece in the art world and attracted art critics who were interestingly divided in how they understood the copper gates, his drawings and books of poetry. The Coppergate project traveled to museums and galleries around the world, and Martin maintained his stoic silence, leaving room for endless speculations. Who is Martin Oestfall? It's not easy to give a clear picture of Martin Oestfall. Before the Coppergate works, he had made a name in the art world from his complex mirror sculptures and his unique paintings and drawings which often seem to find the edge between figurative images and uncompromising abstraction. But the big artistic success came from the work based on the Coppergate dreams. This work, together with his many art books, had been published in more than 20 languages and were widely discussed in search of subliminal messages. Different groups laid claim to discoveries of far-flung messages from a secret world. Martin preferred not to talk about his art, and he rarely reacted to the different interpretations by the art critics. He never or almost never gave interviews, and when he did, the answers were confusing and sometimes he was contradicting himself. Martin didn't want to confuse his art with any references or truthful information about himself, once claiming that deception was a part of the subtle aura surrounding his work. Only a handful of people had any knowledge of his private life. Some people said that he was born in one or another of the Baltic republics. Others claimed that he had spent his childhood in either Croatia or in Serbia. When asked about his age, he would say that he was not sure, but his guess was between 30 and 40. His hair was kept braided in a ponytail, and most of the time he sported a neatly trimmed salt and pepper beard. His sensual lips were sharply outlined, his eyes dark and penetrating, observing the world with his head defiantly tilted backwards. He was often described by others as a man who radiates self-confident arrogance. He was in the habit of meeting people's attempts to engage him with silence that made him famously uncomfortable to be around. Martin was constantly traveling between galleries and museums to participate in the look and feel of the exhibitions, and then he would disappear for months 
to places only known to himself. On these occasions, he would cancel all schedules without bothering to explain himself to anybody. It was only known to him that he spent weeks, sometimes months, obsessing about his shortcomings, his unkind judgment of the world and cowardly acts towards others. For years he was living in New York City and in London, but only few friends sworn to secrecy knew where. Martin is the kind of person who has many fantasies and secrets that will never be known to anybody. Somebody once said about him that his aim was to slip into paradise from where he was hoping to have a panoramic view of hell. Many years after the first Coppergate show in New York City, Martin had reluctantly accept, accepted an invitation from Slovenia to take part in a symposium that brought artists, politicians, scientists and business people together to discuss the relationship between the interdependent acts of creation and destruction. The point that the invited guest panels agreed on was that all life was involved in these inevitable cycles of birth and destruction. The artist had the obligation to engage in destruction with the same passion as the act of creation. By participating in the Slovenian Symposium, Martin broke his legendary silence and spoke for the very first time about how he would at times burn, slash, discard, sometimes his most successful work, just to stop the babbling sound of the ego. He claimed that his act of distraction had opened the doors to new understanding and to opportunities that could not be had in any other way. Martin claimed that the process of creation and destruction could not be limited to the manifestation of the art, but the same unrelenting courage had to be part of the identity of the artist in all of us. As he was addressing the audience, he was aware that his talk had a bitter taste of dishonesty, since he never had the courage to face the uncertainty of what was hiding behind those doors, never with Antonio and never in his dreams. After the conclusion of the symposium, the Slovenian host suggested that Martin take some time off to experience the beauty of the Slovenian countryside. He decided to rent an open car and take a few days to drive around the handsome mountain landscape and enjoy the fresh, unpolluted Slovenian mountain air. This warm, sunny day, Martin was heading out of the Slovenian capital, Ljubljana. The road was nearly empty, and Martin, who had always been addicted to speed, found the rhythm of the winding roads, and with increasing confidence, he began to push the car to its limits and took pleasure listening to the high-pitched sound of the tires as he zipped through the hairpin turns of the paved roads. 
he heard the distant roaring noise of a truck on a low gear struggling to get up the mountainside. Suddenly, the entire road in front of him was filled up with a truck coming right at his speeding car. Too late to brake. There was this small opening between the truck and the mountainside. On the other side was a narrow gap between a flimsy-looking fence and a steep gorge. He made a split-second decision for his escape.